This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 48. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. Okay, today I would like to welcome Dan Tomasulo. He did a PhD in psychology as well as a master's in applied positive psychology. He's also a therapist and has a master's of the fine arts in creative writing. His latest book is called Confessions of a Former Child, a therapist's memoir, and he's already working on the next one. Welcome, Dan. Oh, hello, Kristen. How are you? Thanks so much for this interview. Thank you for coming on. Can you tell us the story of how you discovered positive psychology? Uh, yeah, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's got a, in hindsight, it's got a pretty linear progression, but as I was living through it, it didn't feel that way. Um, I, uh, I had a best friend, I uh, still do, um, uh, his name is Joel Morgowski, and, uh, we've been friends for 35 years, so, uh, it's a very long, deep, uh, wonderful relationship. And um, he had designed a positive psychology course. He's a photographer and a psychologist and, um, you know, got all turned on uh, by this very, very early on. And uh, Joel um, uh, invited me to uh, one of his classes. Um, my, my postdoctoral training is in psychodrama, so I use a lot of experiential methods, action methods, uh, role playing uh, in my work. And he thought it would be fun to uh, bring some of the psychodrama into his class in positive psychology. So I went there, got all turned on by it, and, um, you know, found it really fascinating. And then um, uh, about a year or so after uh, that course, um, I went through a very, very difficult time in my personal life. Um, I had gone through a, um, a divorce after 30 years and uh, it was very, very, very hard emotionally. And, um, you know, it's, it's always good if you're going through a hard emotional time to have a best friend that's a positive psychologist. I think that's, uh, that, that's an essential way to do it. And, um, you, you know, Joel was, uh, was right there, you know, all the time. And, you know, we spent countless hours uh, talking and, you know, sharing things. And um, at some point he said, well, you know, the first International Positive Psychology Association um, meeting is going to be happening right at uh, UPenn, right in Philly. Uh, why don't we go? And I told him it was annoying enough to have um, my best friend be a positive psychologist while I'm trying to feel as miserable as I can. Uh, and I said, I really don't want to be around 2,000 happy people uh, who are psychologists as well. And uh, he promptly ignored me, uh, got tickets for the uh, event. and. Um, so we went. Um, he also got the hotel room. He just literally dragged me there. And, um, you know, this was uh, the first meeting. So you can imagine, uh, I mean, we had uh, everybody. Everybody in the field was there from Chris Peterson, obviously Marty Seligman, Chicks um, uh Chris Peterson, um, uh, Ed Diener. I mean, all the really, really big names. 
And, um, you know, and I went and the, the truth is um, I wasn't a very big fan of Seligman's work beforehand because being an experiential therapist, I really didn't, uh, I wasn't really drawn to like CBT, that kind of thing. His his contributions were extraordinary, like learned helplessness, of course, and some of the stuff he had done with optimism, but I wasn't, I wasn't like turned on, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, went and I listened to them. And uh, the truth is the research itself was so compelling. This wasn't just a bunch of people trying to, you know, act happy or be happy or whatever. The research was outstanding. And I think it was the second day, uh, everybody who was there. I mean, you know, we had uh, folks at the caliber of like uh, Bob Valerone talking about passion. Uh, I mean, everybody was doing fantastic stuff. And uh, but they were all talking about the fact that Barbara Fredrickson was coming, and uh, I had never heard of her. I I had just had no idea. And when she showed up, um, they had to get tele um, uh, like uh, screens or television screens all around the rest of the venue because. Um, not everybody could fit in the main hall to see her. Uh, people had come just for the day, just to hear her speak. And um, I had pretty much the equivalent of a religious conversion <laughs> listening to Barbara. She um, started showing her initial re research on um, you know, positivity ratios, uh, started to explain the burden and build theory at a um, uh, you know, really uh, deep research and intricate level. And it was like, I think for the first time in probably a couple of years of my own life, there was light, there was some hope uh, about how do I get out of this uh, sort of chronic, uh, crummy mood. And just a word of advice, you'd never want to go to a psychologist when the psychologist is depressed. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that you know you you uh, you want to go to a psychologist that's in uh, in in good shape emotionally, and uh, so I was really eager to learn these things, and then um, that just launched us. You know, um, I got I got turned on to it, and uh, Joel and I both decided we wanted to go back to school and apply to um, the MAP program, and for a reason that. We are still befuddled by. Um, I got into the program and Joel didn't, which was um, profoundly disappointing to both of us. Um, however, he said, "Well, you can go spend sixty thousand bucks <laughs> and get the master's degree and give me the the books afterwards, and I'll get the the same education for uh, for uh, about sixty thousand less." So that's exactly what we did, by the way, and. Um, uh, our friendship uh, thrived in the process, and then that launched me into uh, getting getting into the program. And then I think it was like two days after I graduated, um, Marty um, invited me to become his assistant. So that was that was extraordinary, and that was back in 2012. So I've been his uh, assistant for uh, the MAP program uh, and his course uh, since then. Can you explain a little bit more about what psychodrama is? It's an action-oriented form of therapy. So um, it's both a, a theory and a practice. Um, actually, a lot of people think it's this little bizarre offshoot 
but the truth of the matter is all forms of group therapy, everything from self-help groups uh, through uh, interactive therapy, all forms of group therapy originated uh, from psychodrama. And the guy who actually coined the term, his name is uh, Jacob um, Levy Moreno, uh, JL is his uh, sort of nickname, um, actually coined the phrase group therapy uh, back in 1932. And um, he was experimenting with um, uh, role-playing and what's called uh, deep action role-playing, meaning that uh, instead of us just talking about a problem, we reenact it. Um, we use action methods like uh, an empty chair, role reversal, something called doubling where the person says the individual's thoughts and feelings uh, for them. So group members, um, if somebody said they were having a conflict with their mother as an example, uh, it might be something where we'd put an empty chair in front of that person and other members of the group would stand behind the protagonist, the person who has the issue and uh, say the thoughts and feelings that they might be having. It uh, kind of pulls them into the group process while giving support to the protagonist. Um, then if it's an empty chair, that person might reverse roles and become their mother and try to develop empathic awareness or understanding for the other person's point of view and then you know return back to their role. In a little bit more dynamic way, we could invite somebody to play the role of the antagonist so that you'd have a group member chosen by the protagonist to be the mother. And now what happens is instead of just talking about the feeling or expressing it in, uh, you know, in, in a verbal form of therapy, what's happened is we've sort of reenacted uh, the emotional state the person is in. And that gives us um, much deeper access to uh, the original feeling state, which also then gives us uh, a deeper access to a healing process. Um, if I'm talking to you about what troubles me with my mother or my boss or my friend or something like that, I'm a whole layer removed from it than if I'm imagining I'm in the situation. Um, when I go to correct it, we can then uh, do things through the therapy to actually um, uh, create a feeling that is uh, more positive and uh, corrective in, uh, in its design. Okay, so it's basically, it's probably one of two things that if, you know, psychology is shown in TV, you have like the whole idea with the couch and the talking. And yes. then you had like, you know, some people with like playing out stuff, either with puppets or themselves. Mm -hmm. And I right. never went through, I never had any training of this whatsoever, yet people think that's what psychology is. Do you feel there is a contradiction between these two or do you feel actually no, there isn't, it goes together well and if so, how? It's uh, that positive psychology and psychodrama are actually, um, you know, separated at birth. <laughs> they're, they're the same thing. A lot of people don't know. Like, just to give you an idea, there's a new book out called uh, Impromptu Man uh, by um, Jonathan Moreno, who's a um, uh, full professor in medical ethics at UPenn, uh, so a colleague of, uh, of Marty's and James. And... Um, uh, he traces the history of his father 
his father's work, uh, JL. Um, and one of the things you'll find is that, uh, uh, just to give you a, a taste of this, Facebook, <laughs> um, the origins of Facebook go all the way back to Moreno um, directly. Uh, he, he was the one who started talking about an encounter with people. Now, of course, Facebook is, you know, the digitalized version of it, but he actually did studies um, on uh, Italian refugees uh, and uh, showed that, you know, when people connect to the people they like, um, that they, their health, their well-being, um, their their capacity for um, thriving in the world uh, is greatly increased. Uh, so if you go back to the Framingham study, which is a famous study where um, Fowler and um, I'll, I'll mess up his last name, uh, Nick uh, Chikakoulis, I think is how you pronounce it, um, they, they traced... Um, uh, how happiness is basically contagious in a group. Um, and they went back in the Framingham study and found out that, you know, happy people connected with happy people connected with happy people. And actually, they were the ones who were thriving. Uh, that All that came all the way back to uh, Moreno's work because not only did he do psychodrama, he did sociodrama and social network theory. And uh, and so at the very origin of um, well-being is um, is a psychodramatic principle. One of one of the quotes that Moreno had was that a therapeutic procedure should have no uh, less of a goal than all of mankind. Like in other words. Um, he didn't believe in just doing something that was therapeutic for this group or that group or the other. It, it, it's that it should help everybody. And um, uh, so in some ways, that is very much the spirit of positive interventions and positive um, um, uh, psychology. Um, I have a lot more to say about that. I just don't know if if I'm making any sense or how that's coming across. No, I th I, I think I'm I'm getting what you're saying. So if we take a step back, how would you define positive psychotherapy? In positive psychotherapy, uh, Tayab Rashid and uh, Marty Seligman, Akisha Parks, they're really the um, uh, the people uh, uh, who have moved it forward tremendously. It is a um, very specific, uh, highly articulated um, approach to using positive interventions in a direct way for the purpose of ameliorating the symptoms of depression and anxiety uh, while increasing well-being. And uh, they have done quite a bit of research. And Tayab uh, Rashid at the University of Toronto is uh, uh, certainly doing the groundbreaking work in this regard. They are showing that in very few sessions, like six two-hour sessions of group, uh, they can cover things like uh, using character strengths, um, active constructive responding, you know, being appreciative of other people's good news, um, uh, writing a biography of how you'd want to be remembered, 
Uh, like, in other words, they take the positive interventions that have been so well researched uh, on gratitude as an example, and they accelerate uh, this process, meaning that in very short time frames, in a two-hour period, they get people to practice it, think about it, do it, and then they have a week to implement it. They go out for that week, um, do their thing, and then uh, they come back and they report on it. Um, and the studies have been mind-boggling. In one study in particular, uh, positive psychotherapy went up against um, traditional psychotherapy, um, antidepressant medication, and the combination of therapy and medicine together, and it blew them away. Um, I mean, the... the, the um, uh, you know, the reduction in symptoms of depression and anxiety and the increase in well-being beat all the other groups. So that's pretty cool stuff, if you ask me. Yeah, it sounds great. But it also sounds like a contradiction because, I mean, life is complex. And I, I strongly believe that two things which sound like an opposite can be both true and valid. But it does make me wonder... Um, about you know traditional um, therapy because positive psychology was not actually invented for the clinical population. So what do you feel is the place of traditional therapy if you know some let's say someone has to go to therapy for a year or two or even longer and then you come up against this research? Well, well let me. Let me respond by saying I don't think that positive psychology was necessarily designed uh, for um, uh, clinicians, like specifically. Uh, but if you if you take a look at uh, the fact that this is new, and somebody like Taib was Marty's student, so he's been around right from the beginning, and he's been running with the ball, you know, as soon as this stuff has, you know, has been launched. So um, it, it would be, you could say the same thing about positive psychology wasn't designed for business, positive psychology wasn't designed for healthcare, positive psychology, you know, but what's happened. And I think the, uh, you know, a testimony to uh, Marty's uh, uh, influence and impact, it's now being used to um, develop movie scripts. Um, it's now being used to influence, um, uh, you know, writing programs. It's now being used to influence hiring practices at, um, um, you know, Fortune 500 uh, companies. So, and, and look, you know, the, the work is, is being applied. That, that's the A in, in MAP, right? So it's being applied in different ways. So um, it, psychotherapy is evolving. We got, we got stuck. We got stuck in two really um, tough ways. You know, the Freudian doctrine dominated psychotherapy for such a long time which was terribly unfortunate. You know, a lot of people don't know, but Freud was nominated for a Nobel Prize, uh, but it wasn't in science. <laughs> it was in literature uh, because he was a great writer. He only wrote about 11 people. Um, so his scientific understanding uh, was uh, not part of the theoretical framework, not part of it. You know, so so we, we got sort of saddled with really good stories about 
what we think is going on with the human psyche. But in terms of empirical evidence, not so much. Um, and, it, you know, only nowadays are we coming to terms with the fact that a lot of those early theories don't really hold up as well as we would have liked. So if you take a look at any studies that have been done on the psychoanalytic framework, uh, and you compare them to like cognitive behavior therapy studies, uh, it's not even a contest. Uh, you know, CBT seems to uh, be way ahead in the lead and much more efficient, much more effective, you know, all those kind of things. So psychotherapy is continually evolving based on new information from um, um, uh, from uh, uh, science uh, coming from different angles. Um, but let, let me let me just add one thing about this. Um, uh, at the uh, current International Positive Psychology Association uh, meeting, which was down in Florida in June of uh, this year, um, Marty gave the uh, keynote address, and uh, uh, in an extraordinary presentation, if you ask me, he. Uh, he proved, he showed without a doubt <laughs> that his theory of learned helplessness was wrong. And he said, here it is 50 years later, um, and the, the new research uh, by Meyer uh, is showing that it, uh, helplessness is actually mediated by a, 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 a section in the brain that we didn't have access to 50 years ago. We didn't have fMRIs. And so... Um, you know, I said to Marty, I said, geez, Marty, you know, you're falling on your own sword here. <laughs> he said, listen, if you live long enough, you'll come to find out that somebody will prove you're wrong, you know. But um, but that's the nature of science. So, so now that new information will get folded into how we understand learned helplessness. And just positive psychotherapy is just the next layer of, uh, of understanding of what can help people best. Okay, so before you talked about um, positive psychotherapy being basically taking the interventions from positive psychology, is there also such a thing as positive, I don't know, like talk therapy? Like, you know, because what I'm trying to see is like if somebody is a listener and they're trying to, maybe they're suffering from depression, let's say, and they're trying to figure out what shall I do? Shall I try to find a regular, like traditional um, therapist or shall I go and look for someone who has put a more positive psychology twist on it. Like, can you elaborate on that a bit? Uh, I can. I, um, I'll just share a little bit of the kind of research that I do and the work that I'm uh, interested in. Uh, I work with people with uh, dual diagnosis who have concomitant uh, intellectual and psychiatric disabilities. That's yeah, you know, my, my private practice has people, uh, you know, more from the normal walk of life uh, and, you know, the, the kind of uh, problems that uh, sort of plague us all. But my area of interest uh, in terms of uh, uh, research and advocacy is for developing programs for people who either have come out of institutions or trying to be re-socialized or habilitated and moved into a community. Uh, so I've got a, a you know fairly long history with uh, working with that population, and and one of the things that we're looking at is the fact that uh, if you take a look at how things like positive psychotherapy and positive psychology have emerged, uh, they've all pretty much come from 
a highly academic environment. Um, and so the interve interventions reflect the um, uh, strength base of that group. So as an example, uh, almost all of the positive interventions that are used in positive psychotherapy, and in fact, almost all of the positive interventions that have been developed involve some form of reading and writing. Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, is very understandable considering the fact that you've got university professors, you know, plucking out students <laughs> in their class or, you know, giving extra credit if they take part in a, uh, a research study. So it makes sense that the, the, the group, the population is going to be highly educated. And then we're going to get some, you know, kind of uh, fascinating and interesting results about what happens when you do these interventions. Um, however, the people that are suffering the most on the planet are uh, uh, the largest population, by the way, um, who experience post-traumatic stress disorder. People with concomitant disabilities have um, uh, PTSD uh, symptoms or manifestations of PTSD uh, much higher than the normal population because their cognitive threshold is such that you know things that might be uh, normal occurrences for you, you and I to cope with uh, become devastating to them. So they they feel the world in a very different way. And um, there's about 750 million people who are illiterate uh, or who have extremely low literacy. So when we have these interventions that come from an academic environment that show that they work, that is wonderful and that's great. However, what about the people that needed uh, to kind of pull them out of this uh, whirlpool uh, of uh, negative emotions that they live in? Um, so my, a lot of my work has been about adapting interventions. Let's not use verbal therapy for this group because we're trying to use the most sophisticated form of communication to get the greatest gains with the population who has the least ability to use uh, that, <laughs> that, that mode. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, uh, the, I mean, one of the seminal studies uh, that Marty did himself was on uh, the gratitude visit. That's uh, pretty much the classic deal where, you know, uh, he had students in his class write a letter um, uh, to someone, then uh, deliver that letter of gratitude. And uh, they'd go, and if that person was, you know, physically nearby, they went and actually delivered it and they read the letter to them or they read it to them over the phone. Um, you know, very powerful way of demonstrating uh, gratitude to someone that you may not have fully expressed it. Well, uh, that's all fine and good if you can read and write. But w what if we wanted to modify that intervention in some way? So one of the things that I've been uh, researching is something called the virtual gratitude visit where uh, we put an empty chair, so this comes back to psychodrama, put an empty chair in front of someone and have them deliver that gratitude to that person directly. Now, what that does is it creates the same emotional atmosphere that you might get uh, with a letter that's being delivered, uh, but it's done in the safety of a... Um, 
uh, you know, a therapeutic environment in a group or in uh, an individual office um, session. And then the person reverses roles, sits in the other chair, and becomes the person receiving the gratitude. Uh, now you're adding an element of empathic understanding, awareness, and integration um, that in some ways goes beyond the, uh, you know, the gratitude letter. And then the person comes back into their own chair. So now we've got the fusion of psychodrama, um, you know, psychotherapy, and something designed for people who can't read and write, but certainly have strong feelings, and we can now modify them in a positive way. So that's the kind of stuff where I think, you know, we use verbal therapy for the purple uh, for the people who can, uh, um, uh, you know, use words as a mediator for their feelings, and who um, who work with it uh, well. Um, but we need to use other forms of therapy to get at those feelings when the person is either um, uh, illiterate or has low literacy. Or, by the way, I have some. I have a couple of uh, uh, you know clients that I've worked with over the years. Some in New York City that have um, you know two PhDs or a PhD and a JD. They are very highly verbal, uh, but there is no way that verbal therapy will work for them because they're too highly defended. Uh, so we use a lot of experiential techniques to move them along too. Right, yeah. I, I read a couple of years ago in uh, my bachelor's, they were trying to to educate. I'm not sure where. It was in Africa. I'm sure it was in Africa. I'm not sure where exactly. Um, and those folks were illiterate. And they try to educate them, I think, about HIV and sickle cell disease. And what they did was they actually paired up with local musicians and they started yeah. writing songs, educational yeah. songs about Absolutely. that. That's exactly right. And there's there's been a few projects like that, um, you know, where we've taken, you know, the idea of, um, uh, you know, ancillary um uh, forms of therapy and plug them right in. I mean, I think that's uh, to a large extent what drama therapy does so beautifully is that, you know, we have something that's one whole layer removed. You know, there's some aesthetic distance between uh, the content and um, the audience. And so it allows for uh, people to receive information in a less threatening way than, uh, you know, perhaps psychodrama or, uh, you, you know, deep, uh, deep psychotherapy. Do you have any example of a patient who went through something like that and um, can share what happened to that person, you know, the transformation or something like that? I probably have a thousand examples of that. Uh, but uh, let me just ask uh, in particular. An average person. An average person, sure. Um I give you a couple of um, uh, ways to think about this. Um, there was a woman I worked with uh, when I was doing uh, a consultation in New York City who um, who lost her husband very suddenly, and um, it was not expected. It was a car accident, and it was um, you know. Uh, 
highly dysregulating. You know, here was a, a man, uh, you know, at the peak of his career. Uh, their life was full and rich. They, um, you know, they were deeply in love with one another. And so all of the all of the elements that you would want in your life were were, were there. And in that, um, uh, it, it, she couldn't get out of the grieving. It had been almost two years since her husband's passing, and the, the, the grieving had eclipsed her day-to-day functioning. And, uh, you know, this was a woman of uh, you know, substantial uh, intellect and, uh, you know, uh, capacity, and she was just um, completely immobilized by it. And um, what, what had happened when she first came in for therapy was she had been to a bunch of other therapists and they did pretty much you know what you would would do in a standard uh if there is such a thing kind of grieving process uh but she wasn't able to break through this uh cycle and one of the things we we did um is i had her write a, a letter to her husband about all of these feelings and everything that um you know they had had planned and how disappointed she was and how angry she was uh, at him. And she wrote a, a very, very, very articulate letter. And it was um, complete in terms of her, her uh, expression and knowledge. And, and so all of that was, was good. But she thought she was done <laughs> until she came into the office. And um, I said, Great. Now, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to read this letter to your husband. And I pulled up an empty chair next to her. Um, And uh, that occupied the next 20 minutes. And this was a two-minute letter, three-minute letter. Uh, But uh, the level of emotion that she experienced during that reading uh, to an empty chair um, was extremely intense. And once again, I think she thought she was done because she had had what might have been called a catharsis. But that kind of catharsis in, in experiential therapy isn't the end point because you're really looking for something called a catharsis integration. Uh, so after she had that, she was, oh, oof, boy, wow, that was a lot. And I said, well, good, you're halfway there. Uh, and I asked her to reverse roles and become her husband. And um, I said, could you be him? And I had her sit like him and and act like him for a moment. And I said, would you respond to this letter? And uh, what happened is very typical in a psychodramatic or, um, you know, sociodramatic setting, but this is clearly psychodrama, where the person when they take on someone else's role is kind of um <laughs> you know in in a good way out of their mind they're not um they're not themselves they become the other persona and what she said in her husband's position was that he was said about this too that um, this was not what he had planned, um, that he had been rushing, uh, you know, he had not been thoughtful or mindful, and that, um, you know, this was an error, and that he felt really bad about this, 
And what he would hope for her is that she could let go of some of this grief and pain uh, because even though he wasn't there, he wanted her to have a good life. Now, that message, uh, she was delivering to herself through the role of her husband. And uh, <laughs> I can tell you, because I can, I can remember vividly that role play, um, she playing him when, when she was uh, you know, acting as him, he was emphatic. He was like, you should get on with your life. He even named uh, you know, people she should start dating and going out with her and whatever. It was actually, if you can imagine, in the middle of all this grief, actually kind of humorous. You know? And uh, then she came back to her own role and she said, wow, I had no idea he felt that way. Um, so, you know, the point of all that is that by using action methods, we can access an understanding, a perspective, uh, a way of feeling that helps us integrate our own perspective in a way that can be um, extremely therapeutic. And I will tell you that, that that we did very early on, maybe the third or fourth session, and um, she actually finished up therapy in about uh, two months, 10 weeks, something like that. And, um, you know, she came back in about a year later, uh, mostly to just talk about the fact that she was uh, getting remarried. Uh, so, you know, it's very, very powerful intervention and very, um, very therapeutic, but it used, you know, it used many of the elements that I've been talking about today. For those of us, and I absolutely include myself, who who tend to be a little bit verbal, like if you if you're just by yourself, okay, there's no therapy setting. What can a listener do right now to kind of get out of their head a bit and get some experience, as you know, as you've been talking about this whole um, interview? Does that make sense? Yeah, of course, and I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that in uh, in three parts uh, because I think there are things that we can do uh, sort of immediately. Uh, I think that there are things that we can do uh, repetitively, and then I think there are things that we can do to uh, inform us on an ongoing basis. So the immediate thing is if you're in a place where you have strong emotions or negative emotions or, or whatever, the fastest way to get out of it is to uh, do something kind for someone else, not for yourself per se, although self-compassion is always uh, warranted. Uh, but if you're in a really bad place, the, the first thing to do is get out of you, being you <laughs> and go help someone else. Uh, and almost any act of kindness will do that. And so, uh, you know, it could be calling a friend who's sick. It could be, um, uh, you know, helping somebody with packages. Any act of kindness will um, stop the tailspin uh, because you're thinking about someone else. So that would be the, the first thing. The, the second thing is, um, and the research is mixed on this, so I'll, I'll just tell you how I've interpreted it, uh, but I'll encourage people to make their own decision, is um, I would do a daily gratitude review of the last 24 hours. And you might be happy about, you know, the the sun is out or it's a nice day or you have your health and, you know, some general things that you're, you're generally... 
um, uh, having gratitude for. But um, if you can be very, very, very specific. So if I did my last 24 hours, um, uh, you know, I would uh, I would talk about the fact that there's a friend I haven't seen uh, or heard from in about 10 years um, that, uh, you know, sent me a birthday greeting uh, that was just wonderful. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my, uh, uh, girlfriend spontaneously, uh, decided to come on down, uh, for the day, which was just fantastic. Um, and, uh, there was a, I had the IRS, uh, breathing down my neck because they said I had made a mistake and my accountant, um, uh, said, no, they made the mistake and actually wrote them a letter. And I got back a letter of apology from the IRS. So my gratitude for yesterday is, is, is through the roof. Um, so oh, that's, that, sir, I, I had no idea something like that. <laughs> okay. No, sorry. I'm changing hats because I actually work in U.S. tax reporting in my day <laughs> job. And I yeah. had no idea of the existence of an apology letter. I'm going to tell all my friends at work tomorrow. And oh, you're just yeah. gonna be like what? It, it was it was great, and it wasn't you know it wasn't like I was ever gonna go to jail or anything, but it was you know the IRS when they come knocking at your door, and I w I was just like whatever it is, just pay it and get it. And he goes, no, 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 they and he I guess used to work for them or something, and he was like, no, no, they just made a mistake. They they didn't look at this, they looked at that. And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm just gonna pay the money. He goes, no, don't do that. You know, let me write this letter. He wrote this letter. And then this lovely little letter that came back and said, uh, yeah, you know, we checked everything out. You're right. You know, sorry about that. And, uh, you know, you don't know us anything and have a nice day. And I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, so that's I mean, that's gratitude. The, the, let me let me just say the last thing about that is that some people have researched it and said you shouldn't do a gratitude review every single day uh, that it gets a little trite. And uh, other people have said, you know, like maybe every other day or three times a week is better. Um, the way that I've approached it is I try to do it every day because it, it really seems to help. And there are some days where, um, you, you know, for whatever reason, I'm running late or this, I, I don't do it. And uh, that that pattern seems to work well for me. Um and the last, the last thing I'll say, and this is the area that I've put a lot of my um, literary efforts into, is to read uh, stories that are inspiring. Um, I have uh, two chapters and two books that recently came out. One book is called Same Time Next Week. Um, and uh, I, I wrote about a, a client with tremendous uh, courage in terms of facing her past. Um, and another one is the uh, Character Strengths Matter book uh, dedicated to uh, Chris uh, Peterson. We have a chapter uh, called um, uh, Giving Up When You Can't Cut the Mustard. Uh, it's about perspective uh, by one of my professors. And so reading stories that have inspiration um, that give you hope for uh, things you're working through in your life becomes a, a, a way to feed your soul. And, um, you know, so I'd recommend finding either a good novel, um, a good short story uh, from, uh, um, you know, either uh, The Sun, uh, Creative Nonfiction, uh, Glimmer Train. These are, these are great magazines that have that stuff. And uh, read stories that... Uh, that can inspire you in an ongoing way.
listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt. Okay, today I would like to welcome Dan Tomasulo. He did a PhD in psychology as well as a master's in applied positive psychology. He's also a therapist and has a master's of the fine arts in creative writing. His latest book is called Confessions of a Former Child.